Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show. I'm Kyle Coster. My interview today is with Brittany Giroli, the senior baseball reporter at The Athletic. Now, I followed her career for a long time because we were friendly in college. We were in the same journalism program. Right out of school, she got a great internship, which she parlayed into a full-time gig at MLB.com. And she's kind of risen up the ranks. She got to cover some interesting Baltimore Orioles teams, the Washington Nationals. She spent some time in New York. And now with The Athletic, she's doing really interesting things, covering baseball from a national perspective, diving into some of the scandals that have been plaguing front offices, unfortunately. And really, she was candid about her rise in this industry, how she did it the type of long view she took, how she capitalized on opportunities. And she was also honest about some of the frustrations she encountered. Um, We talked about what happens when your so-called dream job becomes something that doesn't feel like a dream anymore. What then? We talked about weighing risk and she was very confident in, in the choices that she made you can really see how these last 15 years have shaped her approach, have turned her into kind of a fearless journalist who isn't afraid to tackle different stories from different approaches. And it was really great. And and she offers, the thing about her advice that's so great is that it's honest and it's fully honest. And it got me thinking about the value of honesty when it comes to giving and receiving advice. When you seek people out and you want to learn from their experience, you can learn from their experience if they're giving you a sugar-coated version of what it's been like and what it is like, right? That still has value. But you will learn more if they're giving you the full picture. And I'm not talking about dishing on every single thing. You get this in, in, in work. You get this as a parent, you get this as a friend. When someone has lived life and they're honest about the challenges that come along with the great things in your life, I think about this as a dad all the time. When people ask me advice or new parents or want to know what it's like, on the front end, I will say it is fantastic. It is the best thing that you'll ever do, but it is also the hardest thing you'll ever do. And the challenges you'll, you're going to encounter are one, two, three, and then seven million that you don't expect. And you want to know what? 
when I hear that type of honesty from other people, from other parents, from other people in the industry, whether this is from a professional perspective, I know that they're giving me a more complete picture of what it is. And thus, if they have any life lessons, then I'm going to latch onto those because I know that those are more deeply considered and they're not just giving me the top 10% cocktail party advice. I think that it's a really good idea too, when you're seeking out the advice and counsel of people, find it from people who are going to shoot you straight because that has way more valuable. That is way more actionable. That is stuff that you can use for the big picture and not just a little thing here and there during the day. And I cannot thank Brittany for joining me enough. I really enjoyed our conversation. We talked about her career. We talked about some fun stuff with baseball. She's a proponent of ties that got a little dicey. And then the last thing you'll hear is a subject that's very near and dear to her heart as a former swimmer and diver at Michigan State. The program has been disbanded. There's a fight to keep it. We talked about what she got out of the experience of being a, a collegiate athlete in East Lansing and what others might be missing out on if the fight to restore that program is, is not one. So without further ado, we're going to jump right into my conversation. When you are writing baseball gamers or commentary, and there are so many things that happen, how did your approach change from talking about what happened in that game to larger picture stuff? And how did you kind of hone your ability to latch on to the most interesting thing to write about for your audience? So the best way I can put it is Eric Adelson, who used to be at um, ESPN and great journalist, great mentor of mine, uh, took me out for drinks one night. We were talking about journalism and he said, the first thing that you want to tell your friends, if you call your mom, your dad, somebody, you know, who's really into sports, the first thing that you tell them, that's it. That's your story. That's your lead. That's what you make a big deal out of. Everything else is kind of noise and you can weave it in, you can get to it. Uh, but to me, that's the, the best way anyone's ever kind of described, like, how do you take this game of such magnitude with all this stuff going on and boil it down to here it is, here's what mattered. Too many people kind of overuse quotes and quotes should be something that you or I can't say. Like we played a good game. It's not something you need to waste a quote on. Uh, you need to waste it on like somebody saying a weird phrase or some, some kind of color, something that you can't personally attribute to your own mind should be a quote and they should kind of be sprinkled in there. So that's something that over like the last 15 years working in the business, you know, you learn the ebbs and flows um, of, of how to write those game stories. Now I don't write any game stories. So it becomes, okay, what do you tell people? What is this story about? Um, but I think the, the best advice from Eric, I just still think about all the time. Like if it's not important enough to call my dad and tell him about it, then it's not important enough to open the story with. So we went to school together and I think we knew each other a little bit on the periphery. We were both in journalism and I remember that you got a job at MLB.com, I think right out of school. And I remember thinking that's all I ever wanted to do. I remember thinking, this is the ultimate, this is the dream job. I can't believe someone that I know got it. What were the challenges assimilating to that 
stepping into that role because it's a very visible and, and high pressure atmosphere, I would imagine, from the outside. Yeah, it is. And what's interesting is, you know, I got the the internship and in 2008 and a lot of people were like, you're graduating, you need a real job, like don't take the internship. And I tell people this all the time because in our business, as you know, it's not the, okay, take the steady job, move up the ranks. You have to take risks. We're in the business of risk. So going to that job, knowing it was an internship and it was going to end was a risk. But I was able to parlay that into other opportunities that led to the full-time job. So I think once I got there, I realized a couple things really quickly. One, that every time a new team came in, it was like another audition. It was another chance to network. I kind of saw it as like a free networking service. Like if the Rays, who I interned for, were playing the Yankees, I could meet all of the 10 Yankee beat writers who were down there. I could get to know them. I could offer to help them. Um, So I kind of used it as like one big networking, job shadowing kind of experience. And that led to other opportunities down the road that led to friendships, that led to, you know, other um, freelance opportunities, things like that. Um, So certainly uh, going to MLB.com, as you said, it's very visible. And I felt like at 21 years old to all of a sudden be taken seriously when I was months removed from keg stands in college on Grove Street at Michigan State uh, was kind of unusual. The players were by and large older than me um, or some of them were my age. And so that's an unusual thing that like, of course, now, you know, I'm 35, it's flipped where I get excited if someone is actually older than me and they're still playing, Uh, you know, big Yadier Molina fan and Nelson Cruz and all those guys who are actually older than me. Uh, But I think you kind of all of a sudden grow up very quickly Um, versus if I was at a newspaper in a smaller role, I don't know if I would have been forced to be that professional right off the bat. I remember my first interview, the Rays reporter was like, hey, that's Evan Longoria, you know, go interview him. And I'm like, me? Like, about what? How? And you you have to figure it out very quickly, Um, especially in baseball when there's not like eight guys like in the NBA and you know who they all are, they're very recognizable you're in a clubhouse with 60 guys in spring training, you better learn all their names and faces because they're not always wearing their jerseys. And my biggest fear was always calling someone by the wrong name. So there's a lot of pressure. Um, It was a great opportunity. I feel fortunate that I started at MLB, that I was able to continue at MLB for um, about a decade. But I I do think, I think often what would have happened if I had taken that job, that more steady road what people thought was less of a risk and what probably would have happened is I probably would have lost my job with all the downsizings and with all the things that go on I probably wouldn't have gotten a chance to get to this level because it just doesn't work like that anymore I think it's so important that someone like Jamie Moyer stayed in the game so all the journalists could have that experience of, of feeling so young and like their whole life was ahead of them I think that it's important like Nelson Cruz shout out to you Thank you. Please play forever. Uh, Tom Brady's doing it in the NFL. It, it's an important service. The 162 game season is an incredible grind. Everybody I've ever talked to who's been a beat reporter says that you learn everything, but it's also it's also the biggest challenge. And it sounds like when you got in, you saw everything as an opportunity, and you were very smart about building your relationships. But how did you? fight against going too fast too soon because it is a six month season and you don't want to be you know so eager at the beginning that you've kind of like burned through your capital in in may were there any was there any type of learning process in in kind of pacing yourself yes there was so 
when I interned, everything was so new and exciting. And I didn't travel that I was like, oh, this is so fun. I had no, you know, no real internal clock at all, right? I was still in the phase of life where I could drink all night, wake up for a day game, cover the game and feel fine. Once in 2010, when I got the Orioles beat job, I was the full-time beat writer. And that's when I really had to learn the hard way. When you get a night off, you take the night off. Because early on, I got into that. And I think a lot of young reporters get into that. I have to make a name for myself. Like if I take a night off of Twitter or don't live tweet this game, people are, are not going to follow me. And that's like literally the odd. That's just not true. Um, so I found myself a lot of times uh, watching the Orioles game when I was off instead of like finding an apartment or finding a bed, which I didn't have forever. I lived in a hotel in Baltimore for most of my first season. Instead of doing all those things that help you feel grounded and steady and, you know, excited to get back to work because you had time off, I found myself very burnt out. And in 2010, the Orioles manager, Dave Tremblay, was on the hot seat. And basically they told me, hey, he could get fired at any moment. You can't, we can't give you any days off until he gets fired. So I was just on absolute fumes that entire first season. They lose their manager. They have some changeovers in the front office. And it, it felt like 10 seasons wrapped into one. And I remember at the end of that off season, finally, you know, getting furniture in my apartment and, and kind of looking around and being like, now what? Because I had been, I, I had been so kind of used to doing everything and just so exhausted. I think I slept for like a month when that season ended. And I always tell reporters now, look, if you get a night off, get a night off. Do not watch the game. Do not tweet the game. Do not feel obligated to write a story. If a guy throws a perfect game, that's one thing. Uh, but most of the time in baseball, there's 162 games, as you said, most of them just don't matter. There's like 10 really important games. And I think as you get older, you start to realize the, the, the value of balance. It's something I'm still struggling with as I work from home now, you're living at work. Um, so I, I do think it's really important as a beat writer to have those boundaries and to set aside time where your phone's in a desk drawer or you're totally off and unreachable no matter what. And I think people need to, no matter what you're doing, I think we all need to do that a little bit more because it keeps you fresh, it keeps you excited. You should, and towards the end of covering the Orioles as a beat writer, I wasn't like this at all. I was pulling into the stadium like as late as I could thinking how early can I leave? And this is not the kind of job that you need to be thinking those things. So I dealt with a lot of burnout in this job and I know a lot of people in this industry deal with burnout and I hope that if people kind of pay attention a lot a little more, they don't get to the end of their rope, right? That they can kind of avoid it. Um, I certainly wish somebody had told me, look, you don't need to establish yourself in a day or a week or a year. It's going to be a slow building process and it's okay to take breaks. Yeah, absolutely. That that makes sense. The, the thing that I find with myself is that the internet is eternal and it's never off and the work is never done. So there's always something more I could be doing and there's always something people on my staff could be doing. And it's just kind of like, when do you decide like, all right, enough is enough. Because if you get, if you get in the cycle where enough is never enough, it becomes even harder to turn it off. And, and I've gotten to the point, not now, thank God that family has kind of focused things in for me, but there've been times in the last 10, 15 years, like you said, where it's like, I don't know what to do with my hands if I am not, seeing what's going on on Twitter or weighing in or thinking about what's going on or thinking about work. It's like, I, I've become the person who kind of like wanders around aimlessly with, with no direction. It's like, how did that, how did that really happen? And I think it's just because it's uh, it's all those years 
of of being trained to you got to be locked in and and like you said about taking a night off off twitter is so interesting too because sometimes i won't tweet anything for a day and i think oh i bet you people notice that but then I, in my, in my more rational moments, I'm like, nobody cares. Nobody noticed that. Like, why do I, why am I curating this posting strategy that only I, and maybe one other person is, has ever noticed It's just another headache on my plate. Yeah. And you feel like, and everyone has this, and I run into this too, where you're like, God, I got to keep tweeting so I can grow my following and build my following. And you can take nights off. You can take breaks. People aren't going to, you could not tweet for a month as uncomfortable as that might make you. And you're not going to lose your followers. They're going to still be there. The way Twitter is set up, it's not like there's some big blank space that keeps reminding me that like Kyle's not tweeting, right? So it's all in our minds. I think we overvalue um, our importance. I really do. Um, Like I remember I was getting ready to go on a vacation one year and someone on Twitter was like, how can you go on vacation? There's Adam Jones trade rumors. And it's like, okay, maybe like my first year or two, I would have been like, cancel the vacation, Adam Jones trade rumors. But I know now that the chances of Adam Jones getting traded, if it happens, I'll deal with it. And I can't just plan my life around these maybes um, and these trade rumors. You just simply can't do that. And I think it's important to look at that. Like I had a friend who, uh, who had a wedding. She covers the Nationals. She had a wedding opening day weekend. Now the Nationals didn't end up playing opening day weekend. Can you imagine if she canceled being in a wedding for her friend and the Nationals have a COVID outbreak? Like you just cannot live your life that way. And I think it's important that we all remember that we are not actually essential workers, right? If this past year has taught me anything, it's that we are so unessential to most of the way the world works. You can take days off. You can take a month off. You can really get away from it all, come back and still be okay. You're not going to lose your stature. You're not going to lose your job. Um, You're not going to lose your Twitter followers. Everyone is still going to be there. It's going to be okay. The Nationals having their big opening day moment kind of started to feel like uh, Pam and Roy's engagement in the office where it was kind of like another year went by and it wasn't able to uh, to get going. And then I think when it did get going, the first pitch was hit for a home run. Uh, so yeah, I think I think having your wedding on that day was probably uh, the, the correct choice for your friend. When you decided to go over to The Athletic, what was your thought process in doing that? And was the plan always to eventually cover baseball from an, at a national level, or did you not know exactly where this was going to lead? My thought process was that my dream job had not become my dream job anymore. Um, and that if I didn't make this move, I was just going to leave the business. I've talked about this a little bit, but never really quite so openly. I, like I said, in my last few years at Camden Yards, I would get there as late as I could and say, all right, how quickly can I leave? I was so burnt out from covering the beat and just life in general. And it's hard to explain to people because I got my dream job at at 21 years old, right? Like I had an internship with MLB, then I freelanced in New York and then I had the Orioles and I had, that's it. I was 25 years old living the absolute dream. And then what nobody tells you is what happens when that, that dream job doesn't become your dream job anymore. What do you do? Nobody wants to hear you complain. All your friends are still working towards the pinnacle of their career and you are where you wanted to be. So it's a lot of soul searching and a lot of figuring out, okay, do I want to be a baseball reporter? Because if I did, why am I arriving as late as I can and try to leave as early, right? Like, why am I not enjoying the game and just looking at my watch, wondering how quickly I can get out of here? Um, A lot of the, the fun started just being sucked out of me. Why am I dreading these three city road trips when I used to love them? 
Um, part of that was getting older, you know, part of that was, you know, getting married, wanting, being tired of missing things. And then, you know, my father passed away. So a lot of personal things kind of happened where you, you kind of wonder, okay, is this it? So when the athletic came up, I was very honest and it was the, the nationals beat that they had open at the time. And I said, listen, I just want to let you guys know that I'm not so sure I want to continue doing this. I'm burnt out. I'm tired of waking up every day, having to write a story. So it was a combination of all these things. And the athletic kind of threw me a lifeline and they said, Hey, listen, we don't want you to write about every injury update. We don't want you to write every day. We want you to just pick the important stories that you think are important and, and are worthwhile and tell them. And having that freedom just really reinvigorated me. I felt like, okay, I do, I do like baseball again. I do like watching Max Scherzer pitch or, you know, exploring a trend in baseball. And the cool thing about the athletic and what led me to covering all of MLB is I started to realize that, you know, while I spent all that time kind of like hating the Orioles at the end and, and really just hating my job is I had gotten such a network from being around that I knew so many players on other teams. And I started to be like, well, let's write about this trend in baseball, or let's write about this really cool story with all these starters. And I, I was, I was having so much fun that I was forcing myself to go in the other locker room and talk to other players. And I was writing these MLB stories. So I kind of fell into this situation where the athletic was like, well, maybe we should have you just cover MLB and not the nationals. And I was like, yeah, I was so excited. And, and I remain excited. It just happened in January. And um, so what the athletic really did and was, was make me fall in love with journalism again, because it was about really good work again. It really saved me. I don't think otherwise I would still be in this business. Um, I often wonder what would have happened otherwise. Would I have just stayed in a job that I hated for the next 10, 20 years when I've stuck it out? Um, I've always kind of wondered, because I've never been in that position, what happens when your dream job doesn't become your dream job? No, there, nobody tells you. There's no roadmap for where you go and what to do. And everybody from the outside was like, oh, Brittany Giroli's got it together. I remember somebody wrote an article about me and that was the whole lead and it couldn't have been any further from the truth. Like I absolutely hated my life. Um, and I guess I had to go through all that to get to where I am now and take another risk because the athletic is certainly more risky than a very stable job with MLB.com. But again, we're in the business of risk, as you know, Kyle. And if you don't make these jumps, if you don't make these leaps, if you don't follow your gut, um, you're just going to live a really unsatisfied life. So it's a very long-winded way of me um, kind of saying that I really kind of found myself again here at The Athletic, and I'm really grateful for that. Well, first of all, it sounds like a lead I would write uh, and then regret writing. So I, I, feel for, <laughs> I feel for that profiler. But I, I think that that's awesome to hear you say because it's it seems like it'd be very lonely to get a dream job and then grow disillusioned with it. A lot of people can understand never achieving the thing they wanted to achieve because just by the numbers, most people are never going to get to do this. Um, fewer people understand what it's like to be doing it. And then all the unseen stuff that adds up to maybe you not loving what you think that you love. Now, I don't think it's just specific to work. It also is true for baseball. Baseball has been my favorite thing since I was like five or six years old. I've ebbed and flowed with it. There's been years where I've just been like, eh, it's not really for me. There's been years I'm more excited to do it. It's just kind of like if baseball is the allegory for life, sometimes you're playing well, sometimes you're not playing well. And it's just, you're never going to get that level of same consistency. So it's really, I think that that's really great to hear you say that. And I, and I, the framework of what the athletic does, I think 
my sense of it is that it allows you to figure out what is going to best serve your readers, right? And there is that two-way communication. So how do you just how do you figure out and and decide what type of stories work best with your readership that also fulfill you? That seems like that would be a fun little cat and mouse game. It is fun, and I think what I've learned over the last year or two is um, to get out of my comfort zone a little bit. So I've learned like. I, what I've always really gravitated to has been the, the human element of baseball, of sports in general, the features, right? Like, tell me about what makes Manny Machado, Manny Machado. Like, tell me things that you don't know about him, right? Like, we all see him play. We all see how good he is, how talented he is. Tell me what sets him apart. Tell me how he grew up. Uh, you know, tell me what kind of tragedies or things he overcame. Those are things I like to read. I think of Sports Illustrated back in the day, right? Like I used to get it every week and I would read it cover to cover and it was just this great flowy journalism. And that's what I like. Um, so that's what I've really, that's what I've gravitated toward a lot at The Athletic. But what I've become more comfortable with, um, what I've struggled with for a while is columns and analysis and giving my opinion. And I feel like it's something that, I don't know if I've earned the right to do it, but I feel more comfortable now doing it than I did a few years ago, I feel like, okay, I've been in this game for long enough. I've covered enough teams. I've talked to enough players that, you know, if I want to have a stance on something, I'm okay with people arguing with it. I'm okay with people saying, well, you don't know anything. Whereas maybe in the past, I would have been like, no, you're right. I don't know anything. I don't know what I was trying to do here. Um, so I've been okay taking risks. And I think readers appreciate that. And the cool thing is we see our stats. So I'll be like, okay, that was a good story or no, people really didn't like that. Um, I'm never going to be the person that's going to sit here and write about seam shifted wake. Like that's just not my wheelhouse at all. I appreciate guys like Eno Saris, who I'm really good friends with at the athletic who do that and get these really smart statistics and, and things like that. I barely passed math at Michigan state. So I know my limits. I know that that kind of a story is not going to be fun for me and it's not going to be good. And so I think a lot of what we do when you believe in the story and you're behind it and you're interested in it, it's better. Then if someone assigns you something and you're like, oh, okay, I guess I'll do this. And you kind of just do the bare minimum and you, you get it by, right? That was a lot of what I was doing at MLB. I called it paint by numbers. I would like go in and just do, talk to this guy in the scrum, talk to that guy, plug the quotes in and go home. Um, the cool thing that I've learned is with the athletic is, you know, you write those features and you write the analysis pieces and, and you kind of sit back every month or I do. And I say, what worked? What didn't work? What can I get better at? So you're constantly evolving as the readership evolves, right? As we get bigger, we used to be just this niche site for those really dedicated sports fans. When more and more you're getting more general sports fans. So how do you appease them? Do you do more lists? Do you do more soft stuff so that they have things to read? Um, I think that's where we are as a company and also where I'm at as a writer is I have no problem now, you know, saying here are five teams I like watching. Whereas I would have kind of had imposter syndrome a, a year or two ago about putting myself out there because what do I know compared to everybody else? So it's a little, like you said, cat and mouse, it's a little bit of balancing and then it's not being afraid to fail, which I just think is important in every facet of life. It's okay to fail. You learn more from failing than you do from any like great story that succeeds anyway. Um, and I'm not afraid to fail because I think I've come so close to leaving this business that to me, if tomorrow the athletic goes under or tomorrow I lose my job, I still wouldn't regret coming here because I, I've been on that line. I've been in that place where I didn't like my job, but I had security. And so I think just not being afraid to fail has been such a freeing thing on so many levels 
and it's enabled me to do some really cool stuff. And now let's pause to make some money. All right. This is the dumbest conversation ever, but I want to know who you think is the face of baseball right now. Uh, Fernando Tatis. That's a good question. That's like a good question. See, I disagree. I think it's Acuna. Really? I really do. I really do. I think, I think the San Diego market is, is still holding Tatis back. And I know that they've put those games with the Dodgers on more nationally. And I know that that rivalry is really simmering, but I still feel like he's hurt a little bit. And I mean, it's great that he got back on the field and he wasn't out for a long time. And I think maybe on the long view, he will uh, become the face of baseball. But I, I think Acuna is better right now. I think Acuna is better right now. I mean, Tatis, the fielding to me still remains an issue. He looks like he's a little out of step. But it, the thing that Tatis has done that no one had been able to do previously was like the backlit argument is gone now. Like the whole, like he can, like the whole rivalry, like let's saunter on the bases, let's do the bower, like trolling, like that's all fine and cool now. And most of it is because people just like to tease. Like they're fine with it now. Everyone's fine with it. Well, a few years ago, Manny pimped a home run and got beanballed. Like Jose Bautista, do we owe that guy an apology? He invented the bat flip and he got villainized, right? But everyone's like, oh, cool, Tatis is doing it. We're all fine with that because everyone loves Tatis. It's just been such an interesting, like, remember like that we argued about bat flips forever. And like, I don't care. I was always fine with them. But now the argument is basically like, they can, they can round the bases and backflip. They can do the one-eye thing with the blinking. You can like basically somersault around the bases if you want to because Fernando Tatis does it and it must be okay. Yeah, I'm not going to be doing any apologizing to, apologizing to Jose Batista anytime soon. Uh, but I will say, I think, that you make a, I think that you make a great point in that we are getting to, I, I find like the showmanship argument about baseball so tedious that like, like I feel like people care about it a lot less than is than is brought into like the conversation. Like I think people just kind of like watching their team and see if their team wins. I think that that's uh, you know the showboating or or playing with flair is like just kind of like a cherry on on top for um, a, a lot of viewers. But you're exactly right in this new crop of of talent, which is fantastic. They own it and they don't apologize for it and they don't pretend to apologize for it. And I think I wonder if players five years ago had owned it in the way that uh, Tatis and, and the players now do, if maybe we could have moved this conversation at a more accelerated pace. Maybe, although Manny would like Manny be a great guy to ask about that because he's been doing it forever and people didn't like him. And it, I, I bring up Bautista because he really was villainized. And a lot of it was because of the show, like the showiness, same thing with Machado. People didn't like the way he played, but now it's okay. No one's going to comment on Tatis, right? Like, so now it's okay. So it's an interesting, right? Like now we're adjusted to it. So this new group is fine. Whereas this whole other group had to deal with the backlash because of it, had to deal with the fastball in the ribs or getting hit in the head or these kinds of things that like, or just so silly, like, Hey, you hit off me. So I'm going to put one in your ribs the next time. So I didn't like the way you looked at that ball. I mean, I'm glad we're kind of past that now, but I do wonder if some guys, or unnecessarily villainized because these other guys, Acuna and Tatis, this new group now is a brand, right? They're this cool brand. Whereas five years ago, it was like, oh, don't be like that guy, you know, and everyone bought into it. So it, to me, it's just fascinating to look at where we've come now. And did we not ruin some of these guys' careers, but did we kind of have this misconception in our heads about how, how they were? Because once we have 
that preconceived notion is really hard for them to change, right? It's really hard to be like, oh, we should have had Jose Bautista on the cover of the show and he should have been someone we all loved. And I know, but like people didn't like him. And a big reason why is because of the way he played. We were talking about the Joe Horn touchdown celebration this morning where he pulled the phone out of the, the, uh, the upright. Yeah. And we were talking about it. And I remember that being like the biggest scandal in the world at the time. And I'm like, what was wrong with us? Like, that was such a, that was such a funny thing. And yet it was treated as if he had like thrown urine all over the field. It was just an absolutely wild, wild to look back and be like, that wasn't that long ago. No, and Terrell Owens, remember like the get your popcorn and like people were like, oh, he's so showy, he's so all about himself. Now we're all okay with it. Is that because we all have Instagram now and we're all the center of our own world and we're making reels? Like, I don't really know. Um, but this is where we've come now where it's totally fine to, yeah, like be doing pictures to be doing the sauntering and like the, and I love it. I love the trash talk. I love the heated robberies, but we were not at that place even a few years ago. Were you hacked or did I see you advocating for ties in baseball? Uh, I was not hacked. I am a huge, huge, huge fan of team ties. And listen, if it's football, like I get it. Like you don't have that many games, like whatever. However, there's 162 games of baseball. We're talking about a handful of games that are going to end in a tie for your team. And I crunched the numbers on this like last year. And it's a great example of a story I would have never done previously because people like hate on it. But honestly, the standings would have been the same. So tell me what the point of playing 14 innings is. Tell me what the redeeming quality is when you're using extra pitchers. So you're putting mileage, unnecessarily mileage on guys. You're exposing position players to injury, which again, people pay to watch Acuna and Tatis and all these superstars. And you're increasing the risk of them coming up with a hammy issue in the 15th inning because it's pouring rain or because they've just been literally been on their feet for five hours. So where and, and the tv numbers show that people stop watching gradually as the innings go on and on so if no one's watching and the game is going downhill and like we have catchers pitching how is that a better outcome than just a tie well i'll tell you why because i think that there's a social agreement with fans watching the game that there will be a resolution there will be a winner there will be a loser in that game and the only thing that stops that right now is like an act of god right like it's tied and after four innings and there's a rain delay, right? To me, there's a big difference between like a storm system rolled in and we don't want to have a reliever who gets paid to throw a baseball, throw another inning of baseball. I don't like the runner on second rule. I think it's a pretty good way to speed things up in the regular season. I have no problem with it, but I just, I, I could not disagree more with this. And, and, and I, and I think that you're exactly right when it comes to like the big picture standings stuff but i wonder if we're not trying to like if if a lot of this stuff we're just outsmarting ourselves right like this happened we did this for a hundred years and it seemed to be fine yes there were some problems but i feel the same way about instant replay now we have an instant replay where problem where people are mad that they don't get the call correctly even after they go and check it and i wonder like you know, we did it without replay for a long time and people were mad about bad calls, but it was like life went on. So I wonder, sometimes I wonder if we're tinkering a little bit too much in baseball from people who don't necessarily like baseball. And the answer always seems to be less baseball. Obviously that's not the case with you. Obviously you've done the, the, uh, (laughs) research, but I just, I, it is a fear that I have. Yeah, I, I get it. And my, my, I totally agree with you on replay. My take on replay is it should be 60 seconds. I can't solve it in 60 seconds. 
fine. Like the only replay only exists not to get the calls right, just to fix the blatant calls. Because the problem is, and we saw this with Oakland and Tampa Bay the other day, is that you are not, the close plays are not being resolved because the people in New York do not want to blatantly, like, unless it's blatant, it's not getting overturned. So for me, replay should be a 60 second thing. If they can't figure it out, then they move on, right? It's just to avoid the really glaring, galling things. Otherwise, it doesn't really help. It doesn't help the bang bang plays that we were promised it would. I agree with you there. My thing with ties, see, my thing with ties is also related to my biggest issue with baseball. Like if, if there's one thing I would fix to fix the game, it's not moving the mound back. It's not deadening the ball. No, it's limiting the pitchers. You get 30 guys on your active roster or whatever. You designate 20 of them for a three game series and that's it. This forces starters to go deeper into games. This forces relievers to be relied on like less. They're not pitching the entire game anymore. And now we're getting more of now, like, is the next Jacob deGrom ever going to happen? You know, like, we're watching that game the other night, and my husband's like, well, they got to take him out. He's had 100 pitches. And it's like, we've become so conditioned to this whole nonsense of 100 pitches with no science actually behind that 100 pitches. And because we have these rosters filled with guys who throw 98, that the, the whole game has now become a, a battle of the bullpens, and that's why they take four hours. So why not limit the pitchers, which by just – by doing that, you're now putting the emphasis on teams developing starters who can go six or seven innings. Like, I'm sorry, when the Yankees, Garcia the other night, there was no reason that guy shouldn't have gone deeper into a game against the Orioles in April. How are you conditioning these guys? Well, we're not conditioning these guys. So you didn't ask for this at all, but I'm giving it to you anyway. Um, I don't know why you can't limit the number of pitchers being used. I think that solves so many more problems than some of these other ridiculous rules. And it's not really antithetical to baseball at all, right? It's just a smaller roster. Um, it's a roster. And again, the Players Association would complain if you were to, to make it 22 or whatever, but every you still have that 28 whatever man roster that get paid, but you just designate it per series. And you could make the argument that over the course of the season, they might be pitching less because some of your French guys would be relegated to... Uh, you know, might not be in, would take series off. And then you could also just have someone on the staff that's relegated to like the innings eater, right? Instead of having a position pitcher, position player to throw, you just throw this person out there when it's 10 to one and you're going to lose anyway. Uh, but it's just, it's just to get some work. So I think you've, I think you've really, you really got me thinking, thinking about this. Um, Cause you're just squeezing one or two more outs out of your Every every conversation about baseball seems to be about saving baseball and worrying about the future of baseball. Do you, how do you find a way to report on the game to speak to someone who both grew up at a point when the game was more popular, but is also far younger than the average age of baseball's demographics right now? So like somebody our age, somebody yeah. younger than us. Uh, I feel like I'm phasing out of, for a while I could play the like, I'm on the same wavelength as these young fans because I am a young fan. I feel like we are aging out of that point. Right? Like we're at this weird juncture, right? Where we're not as young as some of these guys, but we're not as old as some of these like old baseball fans that are like, oh, like stop messing around with this. I'm open to changing things. I'm open to bettering the game. I'm open to, and I think baseball should find ways to make it more accessible, like the blackout rules. Uh, like there needs to be a way for the average fan who doesn't watch, who only has their phone, there needs to be a way for them to get baseball. And that's why I think like John Boy Media is doing a, a great service 
in hitting that YouTube crowd and hitting that younger group. And I think it's something that like the athletic and more, more mainstream outlets MLB like need to do more of because, you know, the space that we're in now, there are a lot of young kids that are like on Twitter. Like they're not on these, these spaces that we're on, right? Like we like to think that Twitter's the be all and end all. It's just a bunch of baseball journalists, like kind of like just mostly media on Twitter. There are studies about who's on Twitter. You walk into the grocery store and you ask the people at the grocery store, how many people you think have a Twitter? And it's literally, it, it will tell you about how important Twitter is. You know, like most people do not have it. So what do you do? Like you need to get on YouTube. You need to get on some of these streaming services like Snapchat, like all these, you know, TikTok, all these places that I think you need to be now as a media member. Um, if you're going to hit that younger crowd, if baseball is going to hit that younger crowd. You have to change not only fundamentally what the game is, but you have to change how people consume it and how they interact with it. The snippets, the highlights, these are all things that people are consuming now. Like I love watching with MLB TV, those like three minute game recaps. They give me exactly what I need. I don't have time, mostly no one has time to watch all these four hour baseball games. So I think it's like the, the big question. And I think the, the media companies and the people that are gonna be around in 10, 20 years and successful are the people who realize now that they need to change. That like sitting there pecking away at your typewriter, writing a game story for the next day is antiquated and no one's reading it, right? Like you just need to find a better way to do things. You, yeah, you and need it, to find a better way to do things. You need to make it more entertaining or no one's no one is going to engage with that product. This is why newspapers are, are dying is they were so late to, to the game. They were so late to adjusting and baseball's in the situation now where other sports are adapting. Baseball needs to be one of those sports that's, you know, that they're finally on YouTube and they have some free games on YouTube and hopefully they do that a little more. Like they need to be that, they need to be that sport. Like I don't want to watch a studio show with four guys in suits sitting there half an hour before the game droning on. I'd rather watch John Boy. Like you need to, you need to adapt. You need to hit that demographic. That's not just our age, but even younger. Would it make you feel any better if you knew that one of the people in the suits, what, doesn't watch baseball like Gary Sheffield? Uh, it actually makes me feel worse. I, I See, I'm all for players who are in the media if they're good. I think just because you're a player, you shouldn't necessarily be thrown on there and all of a sudden your opinion matters. I think a lot of the worst players are the best analysts for a reason because they had to observe and they had to try. And I think a lot of the best players and the names are terrible for that reason. Everything came easy to them. They didn't have to work for anything. And they think they can just skate by on their name and say nothing. So when you were at Michigan State, you remember the swimming and diving team. And that's how we met. I was roommates with someone on the team. And it was really, it's been a rough year because they suspended the program um, in the wake of COVID and a lot of like athletic department cuts that don't seem to be equitable across the board when it comes to sports. But I know that you and your other swimmers and divers have um, kind of been working to try to get them to change that decision and, and build support for that. So can you tell me a little bit about how you've been involved? Yeah. So um, a bunch of the, the people who kind of organized this effort, um, you know, obviously I'm in media. I have a little bit of a following and, and I was really troubled to hear that because all of my best friends I met through swimming. And I think, you look at the what's going on and Michigan State's not the only one that's cutting a small revenue sport, but you look at what's going on and it certainly doesn't add up. We're talking about a sport that is less than 1% of the athletic department's budget. Um, we're talking about uh, a year where 
it was an anomaly, right? We are now getting back to normal. This football season, there will be fans at Spartan Stadium. You know, we are going to get back to that regular, uh, regular sporting experience again. And I just have a hard time with all of these universities and all these athletic departments. Um, you know, you get told, save for a rainy day, right? Everybody gets told, put your money in savings. Well, does nobody else do that on the grander scale because you have one down year and all of a sudden, and this happens in teams and universities everywhere, they have to make cuts and they blame it on this down year. And to me, it's just total BS because uh, was there no savings? Was there nothing that you could withstand a down year or do you want to just put that money elsewhere? It seems to me like with Michigan State, with a lot of these programs that are getting cut that are non-revenue sports, what they're doing is using COVID as an, a reason to, to do it, right? To avoid as much backlash as they normally would um, you cannot sit here and convince me they don't have money to support a 1% of the athletic budget. You, you, you just cannot. And also, it's not just swimming and diving. It's happening everywhere on all these smaller sports. And I worry for the people who go to college for this reason, for the people who can't afford to go to college, like the lives that this changes and impacts. And for what? For an extra football facility? It's just really unsettling. And, and obviously, I could go for hours about this and I won't, but I will say that Michigan State swimming and diving is not going to go quietly. And several other programs have kind of gotten this situation reversed. So there is a little precedent uh, for hopefully maybe restoring it now that we're kind of headed towards normalcy somewhat, maybe they get there. Um, but I think about my life and, and I certainly wouldn't have gone to Michigan State. I wouldn't have, have had a degree in journalism. I wouldn't have gotten an opportunity with MLB.com uh, because of Dan Dickerson who, is, who works for the Tigers, whose wife works at Michigan State in the journalism program. So all those little strings of your life, you sit back and think about what, could, what would have gone differently had you, not, had you not gone to Michigan State to swim. And it's like that for every program and every athlete everywhere. And um, I hope that the, the non-revenue sports can, can kind of reclaim this and take it back a little bit. I think the part that's disconcerting to me is seeing it now as someone in the business world, seeing how they're making a financial choice and trying to turn everything into like a professionalized climate. Uh, and, and it's, it's all about the bottom line for them and, and their, their P and L's and stuff like that. But then I don't, I remember 15 years ago and I remembered about, I remember how important those things were at the time I played club baseball which was a different scenario that was, that was self-funded, but it was like those relationships that were formed, those were, that was the best part of my experience. Right. And it, it's this whole community. It's not just the, it's not just the current athletes that are impacted by this. Like you said, it's the future opportunities that are lost. And then it's all, everybody who's come before that sees themselves as part of that family who wants to see it continue. And my fear is that it'll be incumbent on, on like you said, the, the 1% to, to self-fund that. Well, there's, there's so much bloat and so much excess in the other programs. Now, don't get me wrong. I love going to Spartan Stadium, watching a decent football team. There's nothing I enjoy more than, than a March run in basketball. But if I can set myself apart from those moments 
I can realize that there's a big picture at play and university is only so good as the diverse array of opportunities it presents for everybody. Because if you just have these major sports, then you just have a monoculture that is largely separated from the student body as a whole. I think that that was really cool living with an athlete, getting to see what you guys went through, all the practices and stuff like that, because there was more opportunity to come into contact and see what that world looked like. And I worry about even the people who aren't involved in sports, they're not getting the full experience of being friends and catching on a bandwagon or going to a meet or a field hockey game, anything like that to support their friends. And maybe that sparks something more in the sporting department for them years down the road when they have a kid and like, Hey, what sport should we play? Maybe this, I know people who had a great experience with that. So it seems so small picture and in, in, in cold uh, for an organization that is never um, slow to ask for more money or, or to hit you up or to, you know, to drop 15 million on a new practice facility. Yeah. It's um, one of the worst parts I think about being in this business is that, you know, in sports media, and maybe you agree is that you realize that all sports are ultimately just a business. And, you know, when you were in college, it was such ignorance is bliss. You could just root for teams and root for whoever, but the closer you get to it, the tougher it becomes to root for anything because at the end of the day, the absolute end of the day, every decision that is made is dependent on, will this make us money? And it's really hard as somebody who grew up loving all sports um, to get behind that and to just root for these, essentially these, these conglomerates. That's what all these sports are. So it really becomes difficult for me to root for you know, Michigan State anything or to root for pro sports. I, I choose to just root for players I know and like at this point in time. Um, because the closer you get to it and the more informed you get, the more you realize that ultimately baseball, swimming, football, everything is just a business and it is run as such. What are the, what are the next steps in this fight? Um, so they're going to continue kind of raising, they've been raising a lot of funds, uh, a lot of petitions that, that have been signed. Um, they're going to continue to use the media, um, kind of pressure the university as much as possible to reverse the decision because like I've said, they've been in close contact with other programs who have had this happen. And I think, as you mentioned, it's short-sighted because you think of the hundreds of families of donors that this impacts. And there's many people who are like, I will not donate to Michigan State anymore because of this. So I think, unfortunately, you have to hit their bottom line because, again, it's a business to get their attention. And right now, Michigan State has gotten their attention. It's just a matter of continuing to keep that pressure on them and hopefully forcing some kind of action down the road. Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt, a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters. 
Because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike.